All right, open your Bibles to the book of Acts this morning as we pick back up in our series that uh, we left unfinished, and that's why we called it unfinished, because at the end of uh, our spring kind of semester of small groups, we had been working through the book of Acts, looking at chapters 1 through 12, and, and we left it unfinished because the finished work, or the unfinished work of, of the church is still going on today. As long as there are souls that don't know the saving work of Jesus Christ, our work is unfinished, but as we pick up in Acts 13, we are reminded of this indispensable truth as followers of Jesus Christ, and that is that the work that we do that is still unfinished is in fact unstoppable, and that's what we're going to use as our theme for, uh, for chapters 13 through chapter 28 as we finish up this year the study of the book of Acts. Now, we've come a long way already. In our study of Acts 1 through Acts 12, we have seen the church go from 11 scared and at at times faithless and disobedient disciples to being a church that now uh, ranges in the tens of thousands of people. We saw a church that was centered in Jerusalem, now has reached out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now as Acts 13 begins to unfold, we'll see it start reaching uh, the uttermost parts of the world. We see that Acts uh, 1 through 12 is a picture or, or has the spotlight, if you will, on the ministry of primarily Peter and John. But as Acts 13 opens up, we are going to see a new apostle rise up, the one who had been a persecutor of the faith, the one who had bowed the knee as as he approached Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, this man who was Saul of Tarsus, who now will be uh, entitled or named Paul. And we're going to see his work and his missionary journeys and how he was used specifically by God to go to not only the Jews, but to the Gentiles to share the good news of Jesus Christ. There have been a lot of things that have taken place. And as we open up again this book of Acts, let's be reminded that for many, we hear this and we think the Acts of the Apostles. But amidst all these transitions, amidst all of these changes, two things are needing to be seen that have been going on for the entirety of the life of the church. Number one, opposition. From Acts chapter 3, there's a short honeymoon period, and in Acts chapter 3, all the way through, and we'll continue to see it, that the church will be opposed again and again and again. But here's the thing that happens, that we can say with confidence that this ministry and this mission that we're a part of is unstoppable with every enemy and every uh, point of opposition and every person that would fight against the gospel and the church, the church only got stronger. The church only seemed to build momentum. And now 2,000 years later, we are still preaching and proclaiming the same doctrine and the same truth filled by the same Holy Spirit because the ministry that we're a part of is unstoppable. And here's why. Here's why. Because the book of Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles. The book is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the main character. Now, he doesn't get a lot of press because he's always pointing to Jesus, right? And he's an example of what we should do, pointing people back to Jesus. In fact, in these 28 chapters of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is mentioned uh, almost 60 different times. In our passage alone today, 12 verses, the Holy Spirit will be referenced three different times. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, God is on the move doing great things. And 
we need to long and we need to desire not only to be filled and indwelled by that Holy Spirit that was baptized, that we were baptized into the moment we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we need to continually be being filled by that Spirit so that we can be a part of this unstoppable work that God has done. So let's pick up where we left off, Acts chapter 13, and we're going to learn about a church in Antioch, modern-day Syria, that seemingly was unstoppable. What they were doing and what they were a part of, no one could get in their way, and we will see in the end a great outcome takes place. So let's look at Acts chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12, and then we'll ask for God's blessing and jump right in. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Their names were Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul. This is the man in authority uh, of the region. His name was uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word <clears throat> of God. But Elymas, Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that is what the meaning of his name is, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you are full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask for your blessing on our time this morning. I pray, Lord, that not only the preaching of the word, but the hearing and most importantly, the applying of it will, will be profitable and fruitful for the lives of all of us in this place. Lord, I pray, pray as a result, we might leave here a little different than the way we came in. Lord, we ask for your blessing now, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've got this title, Unstoppable. And, and i got to be honest with you, the word unstoppable is a great word. I love the word unstoppable. It means unbeatable. It, it means that nobody can get in its way. And if they do, they're just going to get knocked over. And so when we talk about Christianity, and we talk about the gospel, the word unstoppable makes total sense. I mean, that is what we believe, and that is what we see in the church, in the book of Acts. And that's what we're going to see today, that amidst opposition, the church was unstoppable. But as I fast forward to our day today, in the 21st century, unstoppable isn't a word I would use for the church. 
Now, I don't mean specifically Village Bible Church, but, but I mean the church here in America, the evangelical church. Now, unstoppable is a word that says that nothing can stand in the way, and there seems to be a lot of things in our world today that keep the church from being the effective tool that God wanted it to be. Now, the Bible says over and over again, and in fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's about as unstoppable as you can get. That even the devil and hell cannot prevail against the church. It is going to do the work that God wants it to. But as I look at the terrain of evangelicalism today, I don't see a lot of prevailing going on with regards to us being the victor. I seemingly see culture and the world and the devil and sin seemingly ruling the day over and over again. And I have to ask the question, if we are this unstoppable organism, the body of Christ, what are we missing? Because if we are truly unstoppable, then the things that we see in the book of Acts should be being seen in everyday life for us today. And every study and every statistic that the church has done on it says the exact opposite. I've been reading a book that has really sparked my uh, thinking with regards to this called The Great Evangelical Recession. It's by a guy named John Dickerson, uh, and it talks about six factors that will crash the American church and how to prepare. Now, as a reader, there are many things that I agree with John on, and there are things that I disagree with John on, but this book uh, really is a clarion call that the evangelical world and the church that is in America is in some real trouble. He says the following, which I think is really good. He uses the metaphor uh, of the Great Recession that happened 10 years ago, and he puts it as a picture for what's going to about to take place in the church, and he says the following. The problem with the Great Recession wasn't that nobody saw it coming. The problem was that the people who needed to listen to put on the brakes to adjust course never got the message, or else they ignored it. He says the following, the American church stands today in a similar position on the precipice of a great evangelical recession. While we focus on a few large churches and dynamic national leaders, the church's overall numbers are shrinking. And and let me just stop there. Uh, He does incredible studies with places like Pew Research, Gallup, Barna, a Christian uh, surveying company, and a couple others. And the numbers are staggering. Churches are closing all the time. 1,500 pastors, uh, I believe, a month are walking away from the ministry. There's a great evangelical recession that's taking place. He goes on and he says, the primary fuel for church, if you will, donations is drying up and disappearing. And the political fervor that we have as congregations is dividing the movement from within. In addition to these internal crises, the outside host culture, that is American culture, is quickly turning antagonistic and hostile towards evangelicals. He says the signposts are obvious, but many of the leaders who most need to see and plan for these trends are too busy to notice these broad cultural shifts. Others are too deceived by current success to believe it. And so we have in this dichotomy, this church in Antioch that we're going to study about today that is unstoppable. God's going to use it to do great things. And then by comparison, we have the evangelical church in America that seemingly is dying and shrinking 
and having all kinds of difficulty. In fact, each of his chapters are words that help define the current church in America. And and I just want to share some of those with you. Uh, Chapter number one, inflated. Chapter number two, hated. Chapter number three, divided. He says, as a result of these things, we are bleeding, we are sputtering, we are bankrupt. Now again, you may agree or disagree with John's element, but I will tell you as a pastor, I see a lot of it. I see a lot of it in the discouragement of fellow pastors. I see it and we see it as churches come to us who are struggling to stay alive and asking the question on whether or not we can help them or adopt them into our ministry. The signposts, as he says, are obvious. We are a church that seemingly is way more stoppable And then we advertise, especially here in America. So how does a church like Village continue, as I believe, to transcend these cultural shifts and movements? How do we continue to be a church that is unstoppable? To do so, listen, we need to cease being the church in America and start acting like the church in Antioch. And I want you to notice four things that the church at Antioch did that I think we need to be doing uh, that involve our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the world that will enable ministry and mission to be unstoppable for the cause of Christ. A couple things that I see, and I want you, and you're going to have your pens ready because I give you a whole bunch of space. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of sub, sub points that you can be filling in that won't even be on the screen, so be attentive as we share these. Number one, the first thing we need to do, the first thing that the church in Antioch did is they were excited about and open to the Spirit's leading. Three times in our text, we're going to see the Holy Spirit's involved in this church and its mission. And just like any other day at church, the people start coming in and a Sunday morning arrives in Antioch. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And it goes on, it gives the names, and we'll talk about them in a moment. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord. So Sunday morning comes, and just as we are here today... The church of Antioch uh, assembles and they gather for the purpose of worshiping, being taught the word of God, praying, and fasting is taking place. Very similar in many ways to what we're a part of today. But I want you to notice some things about this church that I think positions them well to be the unstoppable movement and church that God wants them to be. Number one, they loved, they loved worshiping Jesus as Lord. They loved worshiping Jesus as Lord. Now you say, where in the text is that? Well, explicitly it doesn't say that they love Jesus, but I will tell you that their very presence of them being there gives us a picture that they are there to worship the Lord, to fast, to pray, which tells me they love this Jesus. They love him not just as a great teacher, but they love him as Lord. And you have arrived here today, and I will tell you, if you are here for the simple fact of a duty, you're not going to last very long here. Because it's not worth it. Can I just tell you, if you are not here because you delight in a relationship with Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, there are a whole lot better things you can be doing with your time. Your, your lawn can be mowed, the car could be washed, you could go golfing, uh, football season's beginning, and a lot of opportunities to do things. You could hang out with friends and family. If you are here simply for a duty to check something off the list, it is really going to be hard for you to be here for a very long time. It's just not 
worth it. But the church of Antioch loved to gather together. And they gather together and they're worshiping and they're praising and they're praying and they're listening to their leaders. Why? Because they had fallen in love with this Jesus. Now, who was leading the charge? It was their leaders. And these leaders, five men are named. It's not one individual. It's not the, uh, the Lone Ranger approach to ministry. But as we've seen as the New Testament model, that churches are to be led by a group of men and five men are listed. And each of these five men, they're, they're different in diversity. They're different, no doubt, in education. They're different, no doubt, in their vocation because all of these men had different roles and opportunities outside of the church. They had all had different experiences. We have Paul, who was a persecutor of the faith. We have Barnabas, who seemingly is an altogether uh, great guy. We have um, Simeon, who many scholars believe is the man who carried the cross uh, for Jesus. We have uh, Menaean, who is a friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who is the Herod who, who kills and beheads John the Baptist. That's his buddy. And we have these experiences. But what brings these leaders together... What unites them isn't their experience, it isn't their diversity, isn't what they do for a living. What joins them together is the same thing that should move us to be together, and that is that we have been changed by this person, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Amen? And He is what brings us together. And He is what brings the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And these leaders are leading. Now they've been given a role to be prophets and teachers. What that means is their gifts are speaking gifts. They have gifts to teach the Word of God and to share humbly what the Word and will of the Lord is. And so they're sharing their gift and they're using their gift. And during the time of worshiping and praying... The Lord speaks. Now we don't know exactly how the Lord did it, but if it's a New Testament pattern, it probably involved a word of exhortation where one of the leaders got up and said, Thus saith the Lord, and then he would share, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. And we don't see a lot of that that takes place, and maybe not as emphatic, maybe as it should be in our day. It could have been through the use of tongues, where someone began to speak in tongues, and another interpreted those tongues, and from it, uh, the word and will of God was brought forth to separate Paul and Barnabas. We don't know how that takes place, but here's the thing. It's loud and clear. The direction of the church is agreed upon. And in unity, the church fasts and prays and says, we are going to make this a part of our life. Now, how do they do it? Notice, it isn't just lip service. It's a lifestyle. Can I just be honest with you and say it's easy to worship? Man, we had an awesome worship time this morning. Amen? It was great. And it's easy for us to join in the singing. It doesn't cost us anything. And we can join in, we can sing our hearts out, we can raise our hands, we can clap, we can do all of that. And there isn't really uh, any trouble for us to do that. We can pray. We can pray uh, corporately. We can pray in small groups. We can pray in in couples of, of just a couple people. And it's not hard to pray, really, right? There's not much preparation. Um, and participation is pretty easy to do. And so... You could go through and check off your list of things I prayed today, I worshiped today. It's not hard to listen to the teaching of God's Word, hopefully not too hard, okay? 
And so you can cross those things off your list. But the one that he brings up twice that makes it difficult, that makes it more about this being a lifestyle, not a duty, is they fasted. And fasting says, I'm going to give up things in my life that I need, food and water and sustenance for a season, because the things of God are of greater priority, of greater prominence in my life, Uh, than the uh, daily caring of oneself and the eating and and drinking of food and and drink. And they made this decision on two different occasions, before the Lord spoke and after the Lord spoke, that they were going to stop what brought them satisfaction so that they could clearly hear from the Lord. Fasting is a lost art in the church. Fasting is something that uh, we, we rarely do, I think, quite frankly, because comfortable Christianity is the name of the game here in America. Spectatorism is the name of the game, game in the church in America. I come, I consume, and then I leave, and I critique, and I evaluate. But fasting says, I've got skin in the game. This is important to me. And this church said, it is important that we do what God wants, even if it means we have to say no to self in the process. And so they got it. So they're being led by their leaders, they're worshiping and fasting. It isn't just lip service, it's a lifestyle because they have fallen in love with Jesus. And what happens when you do that? When you're led by great leaders? When it's not just lip service? When you love the Lord, God's going to give you some opportunities. Notice they were entrusted with great opportunities, verses 4 through 7. It tells us that the Holy Spirit says, okay, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work which I'm going to call them, verse 4. So they, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they leave, just so to help you out, and I should have probably had a map for you. Uh, maybe next week I'll bring one up for you. Uh, but they're leaving modern-day Syria, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and they begin to head west across the Mediterranean Sea to the island of Cyprus, still a modern-day place. You can visit it and all of that. And they start working around this island in the middle uh, of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a beautiful, and still to this day, is a beautiful place. And they're sent there. Now, I want you to notice some things about this opportunity. Number one, I want us to recognize that God, the same God who called Paul and Barnabas, is calling us today. And so you would say, well, it sure is nice that God told Paul and Barnabas where to go, but he's not telling me, and so I'm just going to sit by, idly by and wait for the Lord. The Lord is calling you. Again, through the teaching of the Word and through your leaders, the Lord is calling you into service and ministry. But notice a couple things about it, because I think that it's easy for us today to come up with all kinds of um, excuses as to why we can't serve. I was talking with a pastor recently who said the greatest disappointment in his ministry is not fighting against the devil, it's not temptation, it's not disunity in the church, it's disengagement of his people. And he says, I, I, I find myself begging people to do the very thing that God commands people to do, and that is to use their gifts and serve God with the gifts he's given. And he says, I'm growing tired. And he's ready to throw up his arms. I'm growing tired of trying to help people and to tell people and to beg people to serve in places that they know they should be serving. 
And so Paul and Barnabas are called out by God. Notice a couple things about their calling. Number one, it, write this down. This is really important. It wasn't calendar friendly. It wasn't calendar friendly. Paul and Barnabas are not given, hey, we're going to ask you to serve for this week. Or we're going to have you serve for this season of the school year. It's not said, hey, we're going to have you serve in this particular ministry. Notice there is no description of what the ministry looks like. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how long they're going to be there. They don't know who they're serving. And yet, without belly aching, nowhere does it say, I've got to check the work schedule. I've got to check the kids' schedule. I've got to, you know what, uh, January isn't a good time for me. You know, that's when the play Playoffs are, are going really, you know, really big at that point. There's none of that. And I want us to know today that many of us have made our calendars God. And we say, God, I want to hear from you. But we've elevated our calendars in the list of to-dos that uh, church involvement and church engagement for the movement and, and for the proclamation of the gospel becomes secondary. We will not be the unstoppable force if everything else takes precedent over the calling of God in our lives. And God does not say, I'm going to give you the time, I'm going to give you the location, I'm going to give you all the job descriptions. Sometimes God is going to say, get up there and do the work and I'll explain it later. And we're not going to have the answers we're looking for. Paul and Barnabas have no idea what God is calling them into. All as he know, all they know is that God has said, go. And their response is yes. Notice it takes courage. They're going to face, they're going to face this unknown future and they're going to do it. Now, let's just be honest. When we get asked to serve in some element of the, of the church and ministry in that, we usually are not fearful that we're going to be imprisoned for it. We're not usually fearful that we might die. But I want you to know the culture that Paul and Barnabas are saying yes to God with is, is a situation where they knew the friends that had been imprisoned. They knew friends who had lost their property as being uh, Christians. They knew friends, first-hand friends, that had been killed for their faith. Paul was one of the guys who was a part of that persecution that was going on. And yet they say to God, it doesn't fit my calendar, but that's okay, Lord. You, you transcend my calendar, and you transcend any evil or any worry that I have. I'm going to be courageous to say yes, because I know you're with me. Notice it's going to be costly. It's going to be costly. It's costly in two ways. Number one, it's costly for Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are going to leave where they had been in Antioch, no doubt where they had jobs, where they had friends, where they had opportunities to serve and honor God, and they're going to give up that, and they're going to go to this unknown place, and in a place where they don't know anyone else, where family and friends are no longer close, where the church that they fall in love with is no longer there, and they're going to walk away from that, and they're going to do this new work for God and His kingdom. This is where it is good for us to remember our missionaries. Our missionaries who have given up all of the wonderful things that we have here in America. They've given up friends and family that they don't get to spend time with or see. And they've gone to places where they uh, are maybe the only uh, American or uh, person who speaks the language or the only Christian in their midst. 
and they've left strong churches and all of that to go do a work. It's costly. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be welcoming Ben and Missy Hatton uh, back to our church here. They'll be here at the end of the month. And, and Ben and Missy Hatton, as a young husband and wife, made a decision with their young children that they were going to leave everything that was comfortable in their life and go to the island of New Guinea. And they were going to go to a people group that didn't speak their language, a people group that didn't understand their customs, and they didn't understand the people's group's customs, for the intent and purpose to spend their life there. Not two weeks, not two months, but their life. And they were going to take their little family, put them on a plane, and then land in the bush of New Guinea, build a home, and do life there because they had fallen in love with this people group that didn't know Jesus. And they were going to do so by uh, taking their young children with them. And you hear the stories, and I hope that you get an opportunity to hear more about what they're doing, but you hear the stories. I mean, things that we take for granted. Listen, if anything happens to them medically, okay, something that we would go and get taken care of, They've got to call an airplane in, and it usually takes one to two days for them to get a plane to get them to then take them out. If a leg is broken, if there's an injury, and they don't have paved roads and paved streets, if the kids get the flu, how many of us just just hate those days when the kids get the flu? And we're so thankful we can go and take the kid to the doctor. If the kid is barfing and dying from the flu, right, they got to hunker in there and do it. It is costly to do ministry. And they're doing it with a team of two other couples and themselves. And so you, you say, you know what, if I don't like my church, if I don't like the songs they sing, if I don't like the way it was preached, I'll just go find a different church. And there's great churches you can find, and they probably do a way better job than I do. Okay? It's easy. If they stop getting along with their team, there's no one else to turn to. Brothers and sisters, we have got it so easy. And our missionaries have shown us the cost of doing ministry. And this place, this place doesn't hold a candle to some of the work that our missionaries are doing around the world. But it's costly for a church as well. It's costly because a church of Antioch is going to give up their two best leaders, Paul and Barnabas. That means the church, and they're going to affirm wholeheartedly that their best preachers and their best teachers are going to go and serve somewhere else. Scholars believe that Paul and Barnabas were by far the, the most popular of the leaders, the most gifted of the leaders, and, and the most um, uh, followed of the leaders. Okay, And that happens, right? Amongst a group of leaders, because of giftings and personalities, uh, different followings happen. And these two very popular leaders are going to leave. And notice the church of Antioch doesn't say, well, if he goes, I go with him. Okay? Because I gotta sit under his teaching. I gotta be a part of it. They say, no, we're gonna do our work here, and with joy in our heart, we're gonna send you out, but it's gonna cost the church at Antioch something. This is why I believe that Village Bible Church is an unstoppable church empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because a, a little less than a year ago, we gave up one of our best leaders. When Steve and Stephanie were released to go and serve at the Plano campus. And it was hard. And there were people that came and said that Sugar Grove will never be the same without Steve and Stephanie. And they're right. Just don't tell Steve and Stephanie I said that. And they're right. Okay? Well, you can tell Stephanie that. Just don't tell Steve that. 
And yet this church affirmed with open hearts, let's send them, let's lay hands on them so that while we may lose something here, some of the momentum that we're doing here, it is far better that we not keep everybody here and try to make it just work here, but to reach a broader group of people, the communities like Samanac and Plano and Sandwich, we are going to send one of our best, which is costly to the ministry here, so that greater ministry can take place in another locale. This is us doing New Testament work, and for that, you should be commended. Because it is costly. But as it's costly, we need to recognize great good comes as a result. An opportunity opens up. So Paul and Barnabas, they're in Cyprus. They're going around the different cities. And they're preaching in the synagogues. And the leading, most prominent man in the entire area, uh, his name is Sergius Paulus. Here's what Paul and Barnabas are, are speaking about. And what does he say? I want to hear more. That'd be like our governor hearing uh, us preaching and saying, you know what, I, I want to hear more. And he shows up and he says, tell me more about this Jesus. I want to hear more about this Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas do that. But amidst this great opportunity comes opposition. One of the things that we'll say is, Lord, I will serve you if you'll open every door. But I want you to recognize that the Lord opened the door and outside in the hallway were the enemies of Christ. And sometimes you and I are going to be called not to the, the road of least resistance, but we're going to be called to the road with all of the resistance. And so this open door of opportunity arises, and Paul talks about this. Paul says an open door in one of his letters to the church, says an open door has been made open for me, and it is full of adversaries. And sometimes in our ministry, we're going to have adversaries and enemies and obstacles. And we'll say, well, the Lord doesn't want me there. No, the Lord wants you there for that very reason. And so they've preached and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. Sergius Paulus says, I want to hear more. And then one of his body guys, a magician, Elymas, Bar-Jesus. Everybody goes by double names here. Do you notice this? Saul, named Paul, Bar-Jesus, known as Elymas, okay? I'm Tim, known as Super Duper Guy, Okay. Alright, so this bar Jesus comes and he's a Jewish teacher, a false teacher, who somehow has connected himself to the person and work of Jesus, okay? Son of Jesus is what his name uh, means. And so he has taken on some elements where he's got a ministry going on to Sergius Paulus. And he opposes Paul and Barnabas in their preaching. I believe, while this is a real-life scenario, I think even more important is that we see the correlation between Elymas, Bar-Jesus, and what the devil and the world, if you will, are trying to do to people who want to come to Jesus. And there are two things that they do. Write this down. First of all, they seek to dissuade or distract people from turning to Jesus. So Bar-Jesus is doing everything in his power to turn the proconsul Sergius Paulus, away. <clears throat> that idea of turning away there in the text, literally he tried to distract them. Isn't that what the world tries to do? The world, it, man, it's got it figured out. If we can pe keep people distracted with TV and media and, and all kinds of mediums, if we can distract them with living the good life here, they'll never think about what eternity without God really looks like. And so the world is distracted. 
And the world isn't aware that there's a day of judgment coming. And just as in the days of Noah, they're given to marriage, they're living and drinking and enjoying life, little do they know that the judgment of God is about to fall upon them. And so they're distracted. And Elymas has got the procons. Hey, you don't have to listen to them. Hey, let's eat some food. Hey, let's go. Let's invite these people in to do some performing for us. Whatever he could do to dissuade and distract this seeker from hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. The proconsul says, no, I want to hear him. Bring Paul and Barnabas to me. And Elymas goes another step further. And it's what the world and the devil do to Christians as they're bold in their faith. And that is they try to discredit them. So it dissuades or distracts them. That's what the world does. And then when Christians really get on fire for the Lord, the world will begin to discredit you and your work. Notice the phrase that uh, Bar Jesus is full of deceit and villainy. The idea here is he's doing everything in his power to articulate to uh, the listening world that you don't need to listen to Barnabas and Paul. You need to turn away from them. They are charlatans. They're of no good. And what does Paul do? Paul stands firm. Paul speaks with conviction. And Paul doesn't back down. And what does he say? Hey, Bar Jesus, you are making crooked the straight path to God. And I want you to know that there is a force. It is the devil and it is the world system that seeks to make the straight path of the gospel crooked. And it fights you. Listen, the spirit of Bar Jesus and Elemis are alive and well in your workplaces. It's alive and well in your schools. It's alive and well in your neighborhood. And it tells people they don't need to worry about eternity. They don't need to worry about Jesus. And so what happens when you stand and say, listen, you must be saved. You must bow the knee to Jesus. How does the world respond? With hatred. Because you're raining on their parade. You're telling them to worry about things that they don't want to worry about. And the hatred is filled. And so what they'll do is they'll call you everything in the book. They'll call you a bigot. They'll call you hate-filled. They'll call you everything that they can. Brothers and sisters, we are coming to a place in America. We just read about it in the book. We're coming to a place in America where it will be difficult for you to be hired at a job. It'll be difficult for you to find a place to live Because people are beginning to hate us as Christians. We are hated. And the reason, hopefully the reason why we are hated, is because we stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what happens? Bar-Jesus is brought low. And Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, blinds Bar-Jesus. Not very seeker-sensitive, right? He calls him a son of the devil. Probably not coming back to his church, right? And bar Jesus, Elymas is blinded. Now here's the amazing thing, and then I'm going to close because we're out of time. Here's the amazing thing. You would have thought bar Jesus, Elymas, who hears the gospel, who sees the power of the Holy Spirit through Paul and Barnabas, who himself is blinded as soon at the moment that Paul says you're going to be blinded, he's blinded. You would have thought Elymas would have believed, but nowhere in the scriptures do we ever see Elymas bow the knee to Jesus. And it tells you, listen, how sinful sin really is, right? How rebellious rebellion against God really is. So he goes about, and it says, groping for someone to lead him. And what he should have been grabbing a hold of was Jesus, and he wanted nothing to do with him. 
Brothers and sisters, we live in a world where you could do an act of God right before them and they would rather say, no thanks. I still don't buy it. But here's the amazing thing. There's a great outcome that takes place. Good does prevail over evil. Gospel prevails over darkness. And the, the great thing that takes place, verse 12, the proconsul believes. He believes. Brothers and sisters, as I close this time, let me ask you this question. Who is your Sergius Paulus? Who, whether you know it or not, is longing for you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you praying for them? Are you fasting for them? Are you praying and fasting that God would bind every evil, every uh, sphere of darkness around them? That Have you ever thought that the person that you are being called to share the gospel with might have a person in their ear saying, don't buy what Tim or so-and-so is selling? Do we really believe that the gospel is the great hope of the world? And if so, are we praying and are we fasting for the Sergius policies in our life and praying that God would bind the works of the devil so that by those bindings taking place, that the gospel will be made clear. Sergius Paulus believed. And I want you to know there's a Sergius Paulus in your workplace and in your school and in your neighborhood who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they need a bold and courageous witness who's willing to stand up and preach the unstoppable truths that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And by grace and by mercy, he extends this forgiveness and love to all who will believe. And in doing so, invites people into the family of God. Brothers and sisters, we have the power, the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. But will we be like the church of America, who is comfortable with being entertained, comfortable with the status quo? Or will we be, as the church of Antioch was, an unstoppable movement that saw Sergius policies of all kinds come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. When we are filled with that Holy Spirit and we yield to His leading, obstacles and opposition will come, but great outcomes like salvation of souls will take place. And brothers and sisters, it should take place this week. So we need to pray and we need to fast and we need to ask the Lord to open up doors even when the gates of hell seek to destroy those opportunities every step of the way. Because here's the great thing, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen?